This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day two. Okay, hello, uh, my name's uh, John Dewey, and I'll be talking about culture change in transformation programs, uh, which sounds uh, pretty grand, but actually it's just like six or eight tips that I've picked up from being the first designer into a, a new area that's trying to move things to a more designy, modern approach as they do some big change in the business. So it's it's really about that getting under their skin part of it, not so much the formalized design at scale that you might do. So, um, and I should say that my, my slides are normally just plain black and white, but I felt like we needed some more color in our lives. So I've, uh, I've taken a color palette off the internet and I've slapped it over my slides. So we'll see how we go. I hope you like it. Uh, so I'll start with some definitions and, um, so for culture change, I'm talking about transforming how people kind of think and feel and approach the, the task they've got in their work. Uh, so we've got a real bias here towards a design-y kind of culture change. So we want to move people away from, say, a hierarchical, dependent kind of way of working where they're relying on the decision maker or they're relying on the expert or they're relying on the highest paid person. Uh, to kind of say how things are done. And people are subservient and uh, dutiful, uh, but maybe not what we want to change them to, which is we want them to be curious and collaborative. We want people to be trying things out. We want people to be uh, failing fast. That kind of culture change where people feel confident to try things out at work and uh, collaborate and be honest about how things go. So that's kind of making work feel like a better place so the organization works better and communication works better and strategy works better. Uh, and transformation programs are where someone or something is coming in and changing the way the business works on an external force or an internal pressure. And we're talking about um, where the fundamentals of processes and usually technology are changing to, to make some big, some big goal, some big organizational change work. And it's normally a number of projects over a, a number of years. So I'm brought in as the person in that situation where they're setting up this transformation or they're running this transformation, it's like, can we bring in design so that we start working in, in that way and have that capability? Which means that um, they're, not, they're not mature yet. So they'll be at level two or three, maybe two in the, the old UX maturity model. So this is something we used to talk about 10 years ago. This is Renato Bello's version, it's the one I always use. And back in about 2010, we used to speak about this a lot. So at the time, only, only Apple was at level six there where the executives and the CEO would be, you know, they couldn't imagine their business without imagining their customer experience, right? It would be, it's just part of how they think. And I think we've come a long way as a design community. So I, I couldn't imagine a, a top executive or a, or a CEO of a big organization today, not understanding customer experience and not seeing that as fundamental to their business. And I've worked in the big banks and I've worked in different areas of government. And there's always a hot center where they're very mature. They're at five or six, right? Or even four, but still doing it quite well. Um, but even in a, a big bank that's got a digital section that's red hot, lean, agile, experimental, data-driven design type things, there'll be other parts of a big organization that, that know they're supposed to be customer-centric, 
and they know there's good design happening, but maybe not quite sure how to do it themselves. Uh, and the same in government, there'll be a red, there's red hot centres where there's a DTA or in a big government department, there'll be a, there'll be a big digital group that, that gets it and does it well. But there'll be other parts that, again, know they should be doing it, but they're not doing it yet. They know that the customer's supposed to be at the centre of everything they do, but what does that mean? So it means that, um, and apologies to Renato, his look very nice in, in red and grey. It's now gelato, but he said it looks okay, so that's okay. Um, so it means that you're, you're saying all these things, these really simple design things. You're telling people to make it simpler. You're telling them that they have written it correctly, but it only makes sense to them. So we've got to translate it to the user's language. It's technically correct, but it can't be understood. We need to make sure it's accessible. We don't need to show all that information, all that detail. Uh, the only thing that matters is we want people to use the technology and the thing you're trying to push, whether that's staff or, or customers, so they can use it correctly and they can adopt it. And nobody wants, that's my favorite one, nobody wants technology, they just want to get something done. If they can't understand it, they can't use it. So really simple design stuff. We're not talking about establishing great CX metrics. We're not talking about establishing design ops. That's what you do at levels four, five, six in the UX maturity model. Whereas at levels two to three, you're trying to do simple stuff. You're trying to make people see the benefit of design. And you're trying to make people, uh, you, you're trying to have some projects that turn people's heads so they can see it can be done differently. And you're trying to um, create champions who advocate for more design. So you're, you're doing this basic stuff. But here's the point at which I may lose the entire audience. If we look at our product, which is design, Sometimes we overcomplicate design. So we spend all day telling our customers of design that they need to simplify their product. And then sometimes uh, we forget to simplify our own product. So when I see this Google search for a design process, I'm kidding the candy store. I love all this stuff, but I want to get into all the complicated ones and read all the detail. But for a design newbie or a design illiterate, or a design resistor, this is, this is too complicated and it's too inconsistent. So we have to eat our own dog food and make sure that when we're talking to novice users of our product, which is design, that we don't overcomplicate design. We have to say the same things about our product, which is we need to make it simpler and it only makes sense to an inside expert. The only thing that matters is that people use it correctly and start using design. Nobody wants your design process. They just want to get something done, build a product. If they can't understand what we're talking about, they won't use it. So at a design conference for two days, we should be talking about the technical details and the minutiae of design. But when we are talking to the novice users, the people at level two in design maturity, we need to make sure we're not talking at that level of complicated design. And we complicate it for the same reasons that our customers complicate their products. It's because they understand their products and because the, the complications are true and they make design better. And those details are important to quality. So we need to understand them, but we need to not talk about them. So um, how, do we, how do we do that? Well, luckily, Simon Sinek has given us a, a good clue about how that's done. So if you've not seen Simon Sinek's excellent TED talk, he's, he's um, in a TED talk, he wrote a book, he's built a career, he's got a great surname, S-I-N-E-K, so you can find him easily. 
he talked about how really good companies or really good leaders inspire action by not just talking about what they do or how they do it, but, but why they do it. And I think we can use that to explain design to the design illiterate or the design resistors. So here's, here's a model that I, I think kind of works, right? And I'm talking a lot about staff experience here. We're trying to create transformation programs where the staff are doing new things, use new technology. Or you're, you're, you're working with people on projects who are building new technology that they're not familiar with. So you'll be saying, I think at the heart of it is the thing needs to work for the people that are going to use it. And I reckon that's what's at the heart of design. It can be slightly different if you're doing something commercial, and I think that becomes it needs to be competitive or it needs to be better than the competition. But let's go with it needs to work for the people that are going to use it. I think at the heart of design, the beating heart of design, is the desire for things to be better. And just as designers, we're prepared to go a whole lot further and put a whole lot more effort into what better means and how much effort we should put in to make sure it is better. So, but I think the point is that for a project manager or a developer or a business owner that you're working with that agree that it needs to work for the people that should use it. And you can use the dark pattern and say, the thing we've got at the moment doesn't work or the last thing we made is a bit crap or whatever it is, you can dark pattern it. But the point is it needs to work. And they'll agree with you on that, at least on the words of it. You might interpret it differently in your brains, but the argument will stand. And then, Further to that, you can say, we need to be sure it's going to work, which again, makes sense. Like it needs to work and we need to be sure it's going to work. And that will get you, well, that gets you user testing and a bit of user research. I had a project manager once in a company who didn't, who never do any design work, but I got him at the start of his project to agree. One of the project principles was that it would be better than the competition. I didn't hear from him for two months and Three months later, I he came to me saying, I, I've, I've got this point in my project plan that it must be better, must be faster to use than the competition. And it's, it's a competitive product. So we had to do some user testing to prove it. So it's a good trick. So people again will agree that it's got to work. You've got to be sure it's going to work because uh, you can't fail out last time. And then you can say, right, well, I know how to do that. And that brings in your expertise, that brings in your design skills. So you can say, I know how to run user testing, I know how to design things, iterate them, I need to make sure it's going to work, I can run that for you. And then not just being manipulative, you can say, I can't do it without you. And that gets you your multidisciplinary teams. Don't forget, ISO 9241, ergonomics of human-centered design, whatever that, the quality uh, international standard is. It's got six principles for how to be human-centered in your projects. And number five, I think, is use multidisciplinary teams. So. I think this kind of works. It needs to work for the people to use it, or it should be better than the products replacing. You need to be sure it's going to work. I, I know how we can do that. Be sure it's going to work, and I, I need your help to do that. And I think this is the golden circle that works. But that's my that's my first point: is that we're not talking about the design process here. So don't sell a design process. Sell a good design. People will understand a good design and want it to be good, but they don't want your design process now. This isn't true for the people that brought you in. They understand the design process and they want to know you're establishing it. You are establishing a design process, um, but you're still going to talk about it to the people that you're working with. And if you are trying to win work as an agency, talk about your design process, but just don't talk about it with people you're working with when you're doing the work. 
that's my first point. My second point is also a don't, and then after that, it's not it's all, not all negative. It's just the two don'ts, and then it's all do's. So uh, my second point, it's related, um, and this is this is castle design. So sometimes we build design castles, and I hope you've seen or will see Rich Brophy's talk about uh, death the best practice, and this is the same idea, I think, is sometimes uh, to make sure design is done well, we build foundations and protections to make sure design is done well. And that's good when you are doing design at scale and you want to make sure you've got high quality. It protects good practice. But if you are a, someone outside who doesn't do any design at all, nothing human-centered, and you want to start doing some, sometimes the design castle becomes this impenetrable fortress with no obvious way in. So you want to do design, but you've made it look really hard. So for example, when I start in a new organization, I'll be looking for the Red Hot Design Center because I, what I mainly want is a consent form for user testing that's been approved by the legal department. They've probably done that work. So I'll be looking for that. But sometimes you find the internet page or the team and there will be, excuse me, <coughs> there will be 120 templates. Now for me, it's fine. I can sift through contextual inquiries and survey designs and design principles and consent forms and withdrawal of consent forms and what, all the things they've got there, observation forms, interview sheets, the lot. And I can find the thing I need and know what they're all for. But if you're a tentative person thinking about doing some design and that's what you see, it's, you don't know where to start. And you might look at what is the design process and you'll see well, it's discovery, definition, alpha, beta, go live, iteration, evidence-based stuff. And if you're working in a waterfall project delivery environment still, you're not doing that. Does that mean you can't do anything? So we've got to be a bit careful about making design impenetrable for people that don't know anything. So another example, I, I worked at Canon once and uh, Canon Research, and we wanted to justify our design to all the engineers that we were trying to work with who were design resistant. And so we started documenting all our approaches. And after about two months, 20% of our effort, we realized that we were creating a design manual that only we would use and we were writing it and no one else would bother trying to read it. So we just, we just stopped, it was useless. Um, I've seen a really good design team and I'm sure some of them might be listening. Um, and they were really good, but they would only hire people that had a postgraduate degree in psychology. Uh, which is bloody useful, but it was a it was a monoculture. So they were a really good team, but there was this clear signal that if you didn't have the postgraduate degree, you weren't good enough to work in the team and you couldn't do the work. And to some extent it was true, right? But it was sort of monoculture that sent a signal that design's not for you. It was actually we want everyone to start doing a bit of design. And that is the mind flip. When you're going from running a team of people who are designers or researchers or research designers, and you want to help them be better, you have a design castle to make sure you, you can help designers design better. It's high quality and the volume is as high as there is team members. Whereas if you're just you and you've got a team or a department or a group of 100 people who are just running off and doing projects, and you're trying to get them to start doing a little bit of human-centered design, and maybe talking to the people who are using the projects, the products that they're creating, 
then you, you're wanting them to take up a little bit of HCD practice. And the quality is not as good, but the only way you can get to volume is just you, or it's you and one or two others at the start, is, is to get them doing it at worst quality. And that's the mind flip you've got to do when you move from running design teams to persuading non-designers to do a bit of a human-centered design. Uh, you've got to do this mind flip about quality. And I think you get a bigger kick, a bigger raise in quality, taking an area that's doing nothing with its users um, to doing something and understand having a little bit of empathy. You get a, bit, a bigger kick and benefit from that than you do making awesome designers like yourselves a little bit more awesome. So that's my second point. Don't build a design castle yet. Um, and if if you are going to, but when you do build a design castle, make sure you've seen Rich Brophy's talk about death to best practice, because it's all about how you make sure you've got the foundations, but you don't prevent widespread good design. I think that's really what he's going to talk about. So um, if you are just selling good design, which people agree with, and you're not building walls that prevent people getting involved, what are you doing? Well, I, I help anyone that will talk to me. <clears throat> and I should say that the people that employ me tell me not to try and fix everything. Um, my team, once I've got a small team going, will often say, can you stop? Can you stop going to meetings and talking to people and bringing back work? And I noticed there was a, I noticed there was a, a talk at another co at a conference saying the power of saying no, confessions of a formal people pleaser. So previous conferences, my team and my employers tell me not to do this, but I'm still saying you should do it. And the reason is that um, you're trying to spread the idea of good design and show what it can do and you don't know what the underground networks might be so this is a diagram of a fungal network of fungus threads uh, and tree roots in a japanese forest so let's see if i can make this metaphor work so you know you can see the trees you know who's who in the zoo you know the big projects you're supposed to be doing but you don't know what the underground networks are so when you first start uh, you get a little bit of airtime, and so there's a new design person here that's here to help us do things in a designy kind of way, and you explain a little bit about design thinking. And you'll get people coming to you saying, oh, can you help me fix this poster I'm doing? Now, I'm not a poster designer, but in 20 minutes or an hour, I can probably make a better poster than they can, and they'll go off happy. Or someone will say, we're just doing this dialogue, and we can't figure out what words to put on the buttons. Can you tell us? Um, or somebody would say, we're just doing this internet page. Can you help us write the content or structure the headings or whatever it is? And I help everyone that will ask. And I'll talk to people in the kitchen or the lift and see what they're doing and maybe suggest some design perspectives on what they're talking about. And the reason is you don't know who those people are at the start. So the person with the poster might not be on your main project, but maybe they're the cycling buddy of somebody quite important who you do want to influence. Um, maybe the, the person with the dialogue box is in a team that, you know, when they talk about the new customer experience work, think, why are we doing that? We've got real things to deliver. And they might defend you saying, well, actually, they really helped me make this thing work. The person with the internet page, you know, might you know, be very happy with the result and show their, their teammates or their colleagues. And they'll say, this, this is actually really good. This really helps. So you, you don't know how the influence might work. And the point is that 
don't forget you're trying to build champions. You want your main projects to be returning, and then you want your uh, to develop champions who who advocate for design. And you don't hear from those people at the start. You don't know who they're going to be. You hear from the detractors, so you have to engage with and explain that it's not a waste of resources. And you hear from these enthusiasts who <coughs> might not be the big influencers, but they they might turn out to be. So you can use that airtime to create advocates for design who will then maybe persuade your champions. That's what you want to end up with is people advocating, the right people, the decision makers or the influencers advocating for design. And there's one more way of thinking about it. And that is, it's a bit like a design process. At the start, you um, don't know much about the business, but you'll get these people coming from the in-flight projects and asking you to do this stuff. And you can't help them that much, small arrows going down from the design practice to the in-flight project, in projects, but you'll learn a lot. This is your discovery phase for how to change the organization. And you want as many data points as possible. The more people you can talk to, you'll figure out how posters are used or how this bit of the application works or how the internet works. So you'll get data points about the organization. And you can use that when you're doing your real work or helping other people to give better input to, to the in-flight project. So gradually you'll be able to give better and better advice about how we can do stuff. Um, so that helps build your reputation. It's your definition phase. And you can figure out what that key moment is, that star in this diagram, where you can figure out how you bring everything into line with the way you want to do design. And you don't know what that is at the start. And it's not formal design ops frameworks in an immature organization. It's, it could be anything. It could be some design principles. It could be some staff personas. It could be a point in the project management office quality metrics. <coughs> What that thing is, you don't, you haven't designed the solution yet that's going to be influential in the organization. So the more people you speak to, the more you'll be able to understand how to do that. And of course, the more people you've got on your side to go with your, with your intervention when the time comes. So I say, take every opportunity with every individual. And as you get wiser, you'll know what the opportunity is. But at the start, just I try and have everyone. Don't forget, I'm told not to do this, uh, so your results may vary. Take that one with a pinch of salt. So, you're talking about design, you're not building walls, you're trying to help everyone and persuade everyone over every cup of tea that you have. Uh, so what are you trying to do with these people? Well, there's, there's two main soft capabilities that you think that you need to be building. And the first one is, is curiosity. So just in case I've been, you don't agree with what I've been saying so far, here's a photo of a cute furry mammal to help, uh, but the skill you're looking for is curiosity. So when somebody asks you about their poster, you can say, well, what posters work? Uh, which posters do people like? What is it a big photo? Is it a big bit of text? What, what is it you can do? Or if it's the dialogue box and they wanna know what words to put on the buttons, you can say, well, let's go and talk to some people and see what words they use if we don't mention anything. Or if it's the internet page, we can say, well, let's go and find out what search terms people are using on the internet that might help us know what people are looking for. So you can help people directly, but you're trying to actually turn their heads and make them want to find stuff out. So for example, in one of my main projects uh, once, we needed to know if the list would be short or long for how many times a customer had contacted us in the past month. So instead of going to the data guys and waiting two or four weeks for them to charge us and come back with a report, 
we just got a bit of paper with a table on it and asked people who are answering phone calls to just jot down each caller how many times they've contacted in the last month. And after a day, we had 600 data points and we could answer. It's going to be between four and 12 normally. So what can you do to make them go and find stuff out? And this is the first part of design thinking, right? You want to you be challenging assumptions or finding the quickest way to, to get data. So how do you turn people to, to figure out how you can find stuff out quickly? So that's all about how you talk to people. Then you've got the second skill, which you've got to do all the work. And that's helping them get in front of their users. So ISO 9241, six principles about how to be human-centric in your projects. Number two is to be an active conversation with your users or actively involved with the users. So we want to remove any barriers or we want to remove all that effort that your people would have to actually speak to their users, whether that's staff or customers. So if it's staff, you might just be saying, well, let's go and talk to somebody. And you pick them up and you're walking down the corridor and you go and have that conversation with the staff member and you can show them how to do it in an exploratory way. Or you might be writing emails to site managers to explain what you want to do. Or you might be talking to the Red Hot Design Centre to, to get their official system for visits to places if there's a lot going on. Or you might be talking to directors to, to explain how contextual inquiry doesn't take people off the job for two hours. So you've got to do all that work for them. Or if it's, if it's customers, you're going to be getting samples of your database. You've got to be talking to, to recruitment companies about screeners. You've got to be finding the consent form. You've got to be doing all that work. It's your design skill, all that work to help them get in front of users. And you might go with them, especially if it's customers, you'll be doing it. But you want to reduce the barriers so they can just go and talk to their users, staff or customers, when they want to. So that's my fourth point. Talk about good design. Don't be at walls. Help everyone. Make them curious, and if they, if it's suitable, get them out to talk to their users as quickly as possible. So, what do you, what do you, how do you get these people out? You, you're trying to get these non-designers out talking to the people that are actually using the products that they're creating. So, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you upskill them? Well, the way I think about it, and your results may vary. Do it your way. But when you've got airtime at the start, I tend to explain about design thinking you know explain how it's a move from uh that hierarchical dependent approach to this curious approach um and you do that at the start it's going to wash off a lot of people but some people it's going to get you a few enthusiasts who'll talk to you which is good and then in my back pocket i've got a research 101 which i'm ready to to train people in quickly just before they go out and speak to people um and I, I know for, for some people here, research one, the 101 will be like a 1994 um, room 101, and you'll be thinking about uh, that's, that's, that's where you take people to torture them with their worst nightmare. So if you're a proper researcher, it probably feels a bit like that because they're not good researchers. A novice researcher would go out and say, here's my thing, do you like it? Or here's two things, which is better? Or we're making this thing, what features should it have? Like terrible, awful research. So you need to just go out there and turn them into not awful researchers. And then I'm not even going to talk about actual design training. Let them do that later. So just very quickly, design thinking. Um, I actually introduced design thinking by having people prototype uh, turnstiles in the train station with chairs and tables, but that's a different presentation. I found these two diagrams stick well with non-designers. 
So on the left here, we've got moving from traditional thinking, and traditional thinking is all about knowing stuff and planning stuff and thinking. Uh, and design thinking on the, on the right is all about trying stuff, getting your hands dirty, failing, having experiments and doing things. So I find that works really well. There's the link. I always recolor it and reword it, but that works well. And then the double diamond, maybe controversially, some people think it's jargon, but I, I like the fact that if you teach them the double diamond and they Google the double diamond, they get completely consistent information off the internet. So that works. And I like that it's got the problem and the solution, divergent, convergent, discover, define, divert, deliver, and take or leave or reword. But I find that it works well to explain design thinking. I'm not going to go deeply into that or into this. There's a whole conference on design research. So I've just found this structure works to convert non-researchers who would be awful into okay researchers. So the first part is people are strange. So you've got to give them some cognitive biases or the Hawthorne effect or the experimental effect. Just teach them that they can't rely on what people say. And then you can say, well, observation beats, get people to do stuff. Observation beats questions and observe. Trust, trust what you're seeing, not what you're hearing. Uh, and then help them a little bit to ask open questions to keep people moving on. So um, if you do that, you can then say, and make sure you plan your research well, you've got good research objectives and you've got a good plan and check with us first, because that gives you a way of a little bit of control. You can see what's going to happen and you, you can decide, do I go out with them or are they going to be okay? And I'll speak to them when they get back. And you can include, don't do a survey or a focus group. I'll do that. So um, that's a basic, a basic structure for me. Your results may vary, do it your own way. Uh, So you've spoken about you've spoken about design as design, not as a process. No walls, helped everyone, made them curious, got them out in front of people, trained them up just before they go out so they're not awful. They're going to come back enthusiastic and confused. The person with the poster is going to find out that no one reads the posters. Um, the, the dialogue box, they're going to realise no one reads the buttons, they just hit the blue one. The internet person's going to find out the internet search is broken and no one gets to the page anyway. Whatever it is, they're going to come back. How can you sort of control this either confusion or, the, or prevent them misinterpreting what they're doing or what they're hearing? So I found that design jams work quite well. So I first saw these in, I think, Westpac CX group. It's a really good way to get the group together and help everyone think about how you can solve this problem or approach this piece of work. So you can do it in a number of ways. If you've got a, if you're starting to get a team together or you're working in a team and they're not designers, you can, in your weekly meeting or separately, have an hour where somebody brings a problem that they're working on and you can help figure out what you can do about it, either by bringing in design patterns that might work or saying how you can approach the project or the research or pointing out what we need to know uh, or helping them say, I'll build your prototype, whatever it is. But it's where you can start to, uh, spread your design expertise. I'm going to stretch the jam metaphor. Um, and you can kind of start to mentor people. Uh, similarly, you could do that in a project. You could say, right, it's time that we all got together and did a design jam. We'll bring what we've learned and uh, we'll all talk about how we can do it. And again, you can bring in some ways of thinking about things from a design perspective, maybe open their eyes to different ways of doing it so they're not quite so so linear in their, in their approach to problems. 
or if there's a team that is enthusiastic and uh, they want to do some research, they're going out and doing some some research. Um, you can say you're not on my you're not one of our core projects. Can't help you in your project, but we can give you two hours a fortnight or an hour a fortnight, and you can bring whatever you're working on, and we'll help you figure out an approach or a way forward or things you can try. So they can bring your their crunchy problems, and you can spread your tasty design goodness on it to turn them into lovely opportunities. Right? So I think design jams can work really well as a way of giving you efficient visibility of what's happening at scale. Well, not at scale, but within the group that you're working on. So I think they work quite well. So at this point, you've started to get people thinking and approaching things in a different way outside of your main projects, but also your main projects that you've been doing in an actual proper design way, hopefully will start to be delivering some outcomes or outputs. And you have to be sure that now you've created something which is gonna work much better um, and turn some heads, hopefully, these are gonna be your champion projects uh, that, make, that make people realize the power of design. You need to make sure they don't get mangled by the organizational communications. So sometimes there'll be a really mature comms department and they'll be talking to the staff really well. They'll have the tone of voice right. It's gonna be fine. And sometimes they also won't be mature yet and you have to intervene. So sometimes you'll find a project team who are doing, are excited and are used to explaining everything when they roll something out. This is really staff experience. So they'll want to talk about the background of the project, how it's funded, who's sponsoring it, how it fits into the strategy, um, what the system was like before, everything you have to do now, like with a, a screenshot for every step in the process, a troubleshooting guide, photos of the team to make it friendly, the whole thing. It's very project focused, very inside out. Whereas your staff member who's receiving this bit of communication about change um, or their understanding what the customers are doing and they have to support that, um, they'll have more than one thing to digest in their team meeting or their morning email. Uh, you're not the only horse in town and all they care about is what they have to do. So you've got to change your comms so that it's human-centered, it's focused on the way that the staff think about it. And it's a bit more complicated than what do I have to do? There'll be a range of staff. So I'm not going to go into all additional comms. It's not my expertise. But the way we like to think about it is some care a little bit, some care a lot. So on the FG index, some staff will be at zero. Zero Fs will be given. And all they want to see is a big picture, two bullet points. Here's what I have to do. I'm done. If they maybe give one F, then it might be what's in it for me, or where do I go for help? So for those people, you just need to have something that in five or 10 seconds, they can see you've done something different. And if it if it's obvious and it it's a good change and it works, and the comms is really easy to digest, they'll feel that the world is changing a little bit and they'll realize that things are getting different and they're being understood. And it's good, it's a good moment for change. But some staff will actually give lots of Fs. And for those people, they might be skeptical or they might be professional. 
but they want to know if it really works. They want to know if you fix that problem they've got. They want to know about his edge cases. So they need to know all this detail and how it fits in with the strategy and all that sort of stuff. So for those people, they do want all that information that you normally provide, but you just don't want it in their face. So the way we normally do it is you've got big pictures and bullet points, and then a link off to the, the deeper information. So split your information. So it's simple yet. If you open the door, you can find the detail. Anyway, not going to go into change management. Just the point is when you're delivering your good stuff, make sure the comms matches how beautifully you've made the product. So um, that's almost everything. One more point to go. So you've spoken about designers. Let's make it work. There's no, no rules to getting into design. You've talked to everyone about design in an open way. You've made them curious and you've got them in front of the people that use their products and they've you've trained them up so they, they're not awful at research. They've come back inspired, enthused, confused, and you've used design jams to help them figure out what they can do about it. And you've been able to choose when to intervene as a designer. You've delivered your good big projects in a proper way and they've been communicated well and everyone's feeling a bit different. Hopefully you're starting to get under their skin by this point. But there's one more thing you have to do. And if you're squeamish about animals attacking other animals, please look away now. So there might be some dangerous ideas lurking about in the shallows that you'll encounter. And they'll be different in every situation. And what you've got to do is bide your time. And when you're ready, go in viciously, go for the jugular and you need to kill the dangerous ideas. So what do I mean? Well, for example, I've worked in the banks and I've worked in different areas of government and you normally get some sort of flavor of the argument, well, it's all very nice with this customer experience, making everything lovely and easy for the customers, but we have to balance that with our security obligations. So that idea has to die. Number one, and I wouldn't answer this at the time, but number one, customer experience is not about making everything nice for the customers. It's about making your business work. So if your business works um, and security is a large part of that business or organization, then the customer experience is going to make the security better. Of course, we all know that. So, but I'll buy my time. I need to understand the system and the context and the organization. But I'd use my service design or my user-centered work to find all the things that are happening that aren't actually as secure as they think. And I'll find the flaws that, that appear to be secure, but aren't actually secure. Or I'll find the things that aren't working in the way they're supposed to be working, or aren't being used in the way they're supposed to be being used. And then when I've, when I've got it, oh, no one's going to rant about security more than the CX guy. I'll own that space. I'll be passionately upset about the problems we've got and the risks that we're running with. And everything I talk about in terms of the solutions we want to make will be based around security. I'm going to take that security argument off the balance, balance customer experience with security. No, customer experience will be security. So it's quite vicious, right? You've got to go in. Got to own it. It's like Tesla. Tesla knew there was a dangerous idea that electric cars were boring. And they couldn't take the market 
with that idea that electric cars are always dull. So they made a two-seater sports car first. Then they made an Aston Martin that wipes the floor so much better than Aston Martin, so much faster than Aston Martin. Um, and then only later, like their fourth car, did they make a, a city runaround. Even the SUV had wing doors. So like they just took away the idea that electric cars were boring because they couldn't win otherwise. Same for culture change towards design. So another example uh, was we were running an audio channel and I noticed that the meetings where the content of the audio message was agreed was done between all the stakeholders so the policy owners, the business owners, the channel owners and the vendors who, who built the system. All those discussions were done via Word documents and email. And, and you can't like an audio message that reads well won't sound good. So it had to change that so that if you're agreeing an audio message, you do it in, a, in an audio conference. And I tell you, the policy people who had to read out their approved message to a group of colleagues, and it was 45 seconds long and officious, it's mortifying to try and suggest that's what you should put in the audio channel. And it really changed the way the, the, the audio messages work because the teams judged them by listening to them, not by reading them. And then one final example, um, also actually, people got really good at impersonating the voice, which was funny. Um, and then finally, working in the bank, we were trying to get business customers to use more of the automated services and less of the over-the-counter services, because the, the automated services are better for business customers. And we made a service that was way better for them. But to get the customers to adopt it, I found that during the service design work, the relationship managers who brought in new business were able to discount the over-the-counter services to the new customers to seal the deal, to sweeten it. And it was kind of training the business customers that that's what you do. The, the bank thought that business customers cared about banking, but they don't. They care about staff and stock and sales and seasons and all that sort of stuff. And they do the banking like the bank tells them to. So if the relationship managers, if the relationship managers are giving them a discount on a service, it's kind of telling them to use that service. So that had to die. So it's going to be different in every circumstance, just like the it needs to work or it needs to be competitive might be different in every circumstance. The dangerous ideas that have been hanging around for quite a long time in the business or the dangerous practices are going to stop you making proper progress. So you need to bring out your any design ninja and go for the jugular. So we talk about design ninjas. This is when you get to get out some weapons and draw some blood. Don't mess about. You have to win and you have to go in hard. So I don't know if this is a, a bomb or a ninja, probably both, maximum damage. Kill those dangerous ideas. When you understand them and when you're ready, go for the jugular. So those are some tips that I found useful when trying to uh, cajole, persuade, fool people into unknowingly moving towards a design mindset. So set a good design. Don't talk about the design process as you establish the design process. Don't build a design castle yet. Make it later and talk to Rich. Um, every conversation you have with everyone is an opportunity and will gradually build enthusiasm. Uh, make people curious and take and do all the work for user recruitment. Uh, talk about design thinking when you can, when you've got some airtime. 
but don't expect much and have a research 101 ready to go. Use design jams as a way of efficiently spreading the design love um, and make sure the comms is talking to the staff in the right way. It's a real opportunity to get the tone of voice right so people can feel that the world is changing. And then when you see the dangerous ideas, kill them, be violent. Um, that's worked for me, uh, not all the time, not every time. Uh, uh, the important thing is to, you know, design it for the organization you're in and, and design it for the designer that you are. Uh, my name is John Dewig. I hope you found something in that useful. Thanks.